Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, and I got my co-host with me, Hunter from Iowa, <laughs> from the Duck Gun Podcast. Yep. How are you doing tonight, Hunter? Oh, it's another beautiful day. We got all that snow, and now it's starting to get cold. I'm getting excited to go south. Awesome. Yeah, yep. we got a impromptu duck trip planned. We're not going to tell you guys where, but <laughs> nope. we will do a podcast from there when we are there. Um, probably multiple podcasts. So we're excited for all that. Um, our guest for tonight is Dr. Michael Schumer. Um, he, like, what's the best way to describe him? He has so much knowledge on, on, on the science of it's crazy of waterfowl and migrations and weather. And so, yeah, uh, he's a, he's an awesome guest. So we just got off with him and we're super excited for that episode. So stay tuned for all that. It's going to be great. Um, but I got an update for you before we jump into the main meat of the podcast. Um, so, Hunter, I was just telling you about this a little bit off air. I should have waited to tell you, but um, I posted a short from The Hunt uh, where I took my nephew out and he got his first duck. Um, in that video, if you haven't seen it, he got stuck in the mud. As duck hunters, we've all... You know, we've been in marshy, swampy places and got stuck in the mud. Well, he got his first taste of it. It's a pretty funny clip. Um, and I'm, like, egging him on to, like, be tough. And, like, this is part of duck hunting. And, um, <laughs> like, for me, I felt like it was, like, a pretty, like, wholesome post for, like, Duck Gun Chronicles. We don't have a lot of, like, that type of content. It's more shoot them up and you know, getting after the ducks and, and mm-hmm. um, a little bit of comedy and, you know, a lot of dog and, and stuff like that. But anyway, so um, post that up there mostly a bunch of people kind of agreeing with that kind of whole thing, you know, getting a, a young duck hunter out there. And, and then we have the anti hunter dum dum dum. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, she more or less says that like, he doesn't deserve to live kind of thing, which is right. It's what's, what's, what's your first thought on that hunter? Like, like what? What's the logic on that? Because he likes to go duck hunting and he's not allowed to live as a, what is he, like seven-year-old? Like, <laughs> like what? I mean, I think he's 10 right. now, right? Or whatever he is. He's, yeah, like, he's 10. He just turned 10 this year, um, this this season. And um, luckily a lot of duck hunters came to his defense. Um, but this is like verbatim. This is this is her her um, comment. So one of one of many comments. But killers spend the day killing then want to be rescued should have left his sorry arse there like she spelled it out like that like leave a 10 year old kid just stuck in the mud just stuck in the mud <laughs> just because just because he wanted to duck hunt right yeah and it's not even like he like called the fire department and like airlifted him out of the mud or anything <laughs> he was just struggling right right yeah you know the first comment after that you know um, a dude said it's a kid are you a vegan? <laughs> I think the answer is yes. Yes, I think she is. Oh, so, man. 
Have you ever like ran into a an anti hunter like on a hunt before, or like at a boat landing? Um, no. Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting. I figured you would have with like the population density around you that it would just bound to happen. You'd run into someone at a boat landing that wouldn't be happy with what was going on. No, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I guess I've ran into like we shot. We've had a couple encounters with, um homeowners or not homeowners landowners or well you know some of them have been homeowners like when you're going by on the river or i had a video i posted a few years back where um i mean we were way down in the river and this guy came all the way at uh, out and yelling at us so yeah yeah hmm. a little yeah. bit not much yeah so well. to continue on this is i think this was her first comment um she said we shouldn't teach kids Killing's okay. It's not. Maybe teach them to tell time or on a wall clock or um, to tie their own effing shoes, multiply, write in cursive. Kids of the future won't be able to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but they'll all know how to operate a gun. <laughs> That's what's <laughs> wrong with this, uh, this world. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You don't, yeah. yeah. They don't know how to start a sentence with a capital letter. Um, she spelled sentence wrong, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, yeah. I mean, like generally speaking, the kids that I know that duck hunt are definitely the ones that are going to grow up and not know how to change their own oil or change a furnace filter in their own house or anything like that. You know, they're definitely, right. those are, totally those are useless. crazier things than, than like telling time, like, or tell, like tying their shoe or like, I don't know what kind of like vendetta she has against kids too like yeah know what I mean? uh, like she's, she's just a hateful up. person she hates kids especially ones that hunt yeah i so. mean you're just teaching them all sorts of bad life lessons like it's important to be diligent and you know go out and hard work pays off you get a reward like that's just horrible stuff to be teaching kids right right she ends her comment by saying i don't like killers in small medium or large killers don't value life so i don't value a killer's life aggressive like right, that's right. the only word i got is aggressive like i know like that's like uh, yeah uh but you know we mike kind of hits on this at the end of the podcast talking about how there's people who don't want us to hunt there's people who don't want us to you know have the uh, the right to hunt you know we mm-hmm. don't have don't have they don't want it even be legal for us to go out there and provide for ourselves um and have some amount of self-sufficiency um, not only that, but just enjoy um, creation, enjoy going out there and getting after these birds. Um, there's, you know, there's definitely evil out there. And I feel like the the way that she spewed her words, she's full of hate and she is evil. So, yeah. yeah. And is going back to like the, uh, what is it? The, I shouldn't say the motto. The mission of the podcast is like we, we shouldn't be against each other all the time when there's stuff like that that is against us as duck hunters. Right. right. Yep, definitely. When you see things like that, that's a reason to to um, come together as duck hunters. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of that out there, and I don't want it. To, uh, I want. I don't want that to be per- perpetuated and exist. And mm-hmm. I don't want that that uh, type of mindset against hunters to to be there. So, um, yeah, we should mention the mission of the podcast because we don't at the end this this one. No, um, but well, we kind of did. Mission but, of the podcast. Yeah is to do you remember hunter <laughs> no i don't i'm gonna be honest with you i'm not the right i'm gonna keep at i'm gonna keep asking you so it's to be entertaining it's to be educational 
Um, we want to entertain folks about duck hunting. We're passionate about it. We know that you are passionate about it. We want to educate because there's a ton of new duck hunters all the time coming into the sport. Um, every year there's new duck hunters. So um, we want to do our best to educate. And honestly, that's a great reason to have uh, guys on like Dr. Mike uh, Schumer because he is full, so full of information that, you know, uh, I've been doing this. I've been doing podcasting. I've been doing duck hunting for a while. And um, he's definitely shared a lot of information with me that I didn't know previous to this um, helped, uh, you know, uh, get the right information uh, on a lot of these topics. So excited about all that and all of that, but we want to be there for conservation, do whatever we can. Um, that's been a big goal of mine as well. Don't want to just take, want to give back where we can as well. So do do us a favor, uh, share the podcast with a buddy um, so that we can have a stronger voice um, and a stronger mission and all of that. So, um, without further ado, let's get a quick word from our partners and we'll jump on with, um, with, uh, Dr. Mike Schumore on, uh, the main meat of the podcast. All righty. First off, I'd like to give a big thanks to OnX, guys. OnX is a great app for the waterfowl hunter. Um, with our out of state freelance trip, that's something that we've been, um, diving into headfirst, making pins, sharing them. We've taken nights, sitting on map scouting, getting ready for it. Um, without OnX, you know, it would be a lot harder to do what we do. It is an amazing tool for the duck hunter from water level, recent imagery, being able to see water, property boundaries, um, private and public, you name it. Um, definitely check out OnX for the duck hunter. Um, also like to give a big thanks to Final Approach. Uh, guys, right now, Final Approach is running uh, a huge sale on their apparel. So uh, it's like end of year, 70% off. Also, you can use the code DUCKGUN over there. Um, and a bunch of the apparel, the camo, the, that kind of stuff um, is like 75% off plus the 10% discount for DuckGun. It's crazy, awesome, good sales. Um, I've been saying on Instagram, seeing a lot of you guys jumping over there. You're crazy if you don't because uh, it's the best deal you're going to see pretty much ever. So... Uh, <laughs> get over there, get yourself some also, some also, some awesome duck hunting gear from final approach, fabrand.com use code duck gun 10. Um, also like to give big thanks to Weatherby guys. Weatherby makes great options for the duck hunter when it comes to their waterfowl shotguns. I've been running, um, uh, the element a little bit this year. I run the, I ran the Orion side by side and 12 gauge a lot this year. That thing, that thing just swings so smooth. Um, and just a cool, unique option. Um, they designed it specifically for waterfowlers, opposed to most of the side-by-side you see are for upland. Not saying that you can't use it for both. You can, but um, it's got the long barrel um, and just set up for a sweet waterfowl shooting gun. Um, and they also have the 18i Deluxe, the 18i and the Camo. Um, I've been running both of those. And um, it's just it's just they got some great options for the duck hunter. Uh, they've been known for years for their excellence and reliability and rifles, and now they're known for that as well for waterfowl shotgun. So check them out over there, guys, at Weatherby. Also like to give a big thanks to Motion Ducks. Guys, Motion Ducks is the steroid. It's the steroid. <laughs> <laughs> the steroid for duck hunters. It is. Uh, is you take this one, Hunter. Uh, motion Ducks oh. is a jerk string on steroids, not steroids for duck hunters. 
Um, it's a great way to put motion in your spread, especially on the water. On them no Wednesdays, it's a it's a must have to put motion on the water, and motion ducks is the definitely the best way to do it. Awesome. Use code DuckGun10 over there and go to motionducks.com slash duckgunchronicles. You get the, the deal for the ultimate spreader, and the code gets you an extra 10% off. Um, the, the link gets you the free anchor bag. So those two, those two things combined get you your best deal over there at Motion Ducks. All righty, so something cool that we talk about with Dr. Mike on the podcast is um, his migration report that he does weekly on the podcast. So this is his migration report. I shouldn't say report. His migration forecast, to be specific, um, that he does using science and data to give an accurate forecast of the coming week. So this one kind of partially goes through this week. Um, The release date is Thursday. I think he releases this on Monday. Uh, So it's got a few days there, but then it continues on um, past it. But I did want to share it with you guys, got permission from him to share it as part of the podcast because uh, I just think it's super cool to have the migration forecast. So without further ado, we'll play that. And then at the end of that, we'll go ahead and jump into the rest of the podcast with uh, Dr. Mike Schumer. For uplifting migration forecast for the week. Previously, we've had some small shots of cold, but not much snow to report, right? With these major fronts, some ducks move, but this week we are probably starting to see the start of a really nice cold stretch that will at least send ducks south in abundance better than we've seen all season. This might be the one that saves it all. We also got rains, but most of them keep tracking along the Gulf and then up the East Coast rather than hitting the most drought-stricken areas of kind of the North MAV or Mississippi Alluvial Valley. So we're getting uh, a wet, you know, kind of Southeast U.S. as predicted for an El Nino year, but not in all the places we need it yet. Hopefully in the coming weeks, we will see some rains that hit those major drought-stricken areas. We're going to start in the east because it probably has the least spectacular movement of ducks south. The strong cold front is mostly centered west of Ohio. For the Atlantic Flyway, a system dumped snow yesterday, Sunday, in the northeast U.S. Uh, started Saturday night and then went into Sunday. This was coupled with average temperatures below freezing, which produced WSI values great enough to cause a mallard migration for only the second time of the year out of the region of central New York into places farther south. Unfortunately, by Tuesday and Wednesday, average temperatures will be above freezing. And on Wednesday, the home office in Jack's Reef is actually forecast to hit the mid-40s. So if I was in the east, I would focus uh, on on areas south of New York for mallard and other duck migration into those areas. I'd focus early in the week, right? Uh, Those systems are not really associated with a lot of good north or northwest winds other than a short period last night. So Sunday night into this morning. So probably get after them today and Tuesday would be your best bet in the Atlantic Flyway for fresh ducks from from the north. I will put, and I'm mostly talking about like Pennsylvania to the mid-Atlantic, kind of Chesapeake Bay, where these birds should be coming in early in the week, um, even starting today and in tomorrow. I will put this caveat on the migration, though, for the Atlantic Flyway, especially the southeast U.S., where I think this is going to happen. Keep listening here below 
because you may get ducks pushing into your neck of the woods from the intense cold that is moving down the Mississippi drainage because it's not like the Atlantic coast, especially Southeast Atlantic coast doesn't get birds out of the mid continent. They definitely do. So I'd actually expect like a really potentially really good gadwall push into the, into the Southeast, right? Mallards are tough to get there lots of times into the Carolinas and such, but I think a bunch of your early ducks are going to push in. And again, you know, it's going to be early in the week. And then maybe again, real, real late in the week is that intense cold really gets after it in the mid-continent. Our excitement for this week, though, is really focused to the mid-continent and west. There's a one-two punch of snow early, Monday, Tuesday, and again, late in the week, Thursday, Friday, along with some wicked impressive cold driving down from Canada, starting to hit mid-latitudes on Thursday and continuing to push south through the weekend. So let's tackle the far west first, just east of the Rockies. For the first time this year, weather severity index values are great enough as far south as Kansas that that we can forecast a major mallard migration into Oklahoma and Texas. Barrels should be hot. Fresh ducks should start to show up on Monday or Tuesday, but get really hot and heavy Friday into Saturday. If you're in Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, and have been waiting on mallards, this is the time to hit the field. As we move into the mid-continent more, we see up to 10 inches of snow possible as far south as mid-Missouri by next Sunday, with temperatures as low as single digits. By Saturday and Sunday, Memphis barely gets above freezing for at least 48 hours. Wow, what a turnaround for our southern friends. Weather severity index values are great enough all week to start mallard migration, but the peak movement is really expected Thursday into Friday. Honestly, if you haven't had a duck season yet, I'd try to scout for new ducks each afternoon and hunt them the next morning if you think you've got fresh ducks. But fresh ducks should be around in abundance from Thursday through the weekend. If you have a private hunting spot you can't get to till late next week or the weekend, I'd make barrels hot for the weekend for sure. And if you have some days off to take, I'd bet on Thursday and Friday is good days too. By Sunday though, little warning here for folks in the South. It's this, if this temperature comes in like we think it is, how it's predicted right now, this is long-term. These things can change. They can moderate some when you start getting seven, eight days out, right? But by Sunday, there may be skim ice in northern Arkansas and maybe the north delta of Mississippi as this mercury plummets. So we keep talking about mallards here, but we'd expect a major push of early ducks, too, that were hanging north. And for our coastal folks, our Gulf Coast folks and South Atlantic um, folks, pintails, gadwall, widgeon, shoveler, and teal numbers should jump this week, too. Wow. We at the Foul Weather Podcast have really been waiting to make this forecast all season since, like, that early bump of cold that hit the prairies in October. We haven't seen anything, right? But it is an El Nino year and, you know, quite a warm winter was expected. So I know it's getting down to the wire time-wise, but I'd take advantage of this cold while it lasts, my friends. Alrighty, folks, we are back and we got Dr. Mike with us, Dr. Mike Schumer um, of the State University of New York Wildlife and Forestry. Also, he is the host of the Foul Weather Podcast. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Very good. Thanks for having me on, Jordan and Hunter. Awesome. Did I did I do it justice? Your uh, your introduction there, or is there is oh, anything no, you'd good. like to kind of add good. to that? 
It, it's just a very confusing college name. It's the State University of New York <laughs> College of Environmental Science and Forestry. So it's, it's uh, I think, the longest uh, college name that exists out there. We generally go by ESF for Environmental Science and Forestry. So it's, it's kind of the premier wildlife and forestry school in, uh, in New York. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we're good. Awesome. But, uh, but alongside of all that, you are an avid waterfowler. And not only that, but uh, it seems like you're passionate about um, the actual science that goes into everything to do with, with waterfowl as well, which really kind of got me onto you. Just a lot of the information you share along, um, along that front, which, you know, a lot of, I, I would say a lot of the stuff we kind of almost get as waterfowlers as bro science, just one, one guy says it to another and it kind of gets perpetuated and, and so forth. And then it, it, it kind of turns into that being fact. Um, whereas there's not necessarily a lot of science behind it. So honestly, it was, um, it was really interesting to hear a lot of things you've had to say, and and, and I'm excited to, to pick your brain and, and um, have you on to share that information and, and help waterfowlers better understand everything that's going on um, with what has to do with, with waterfowl hunting. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. Just real quick, the you know what I always tell my students too. So. The you know we do all this kind of highbrow science that ends up in journals and all that right and it gets consumed by Fish and Wildlife Service and state agencies and it's how they manage. But if we don't break that down for the public and get into lay terms and in popular articles and magazines, I think we're really missing the boat to a large degree. So we always really try to push out of our lab at ESF um, and then communication like this the the information to the public because they're the they're the user of that resource to a large degree and it's important that they understand the the guts behind all the good work that uh you know waterfall biologists do out there on a day-to-day basis definitely definitely so are you pretty hands-on with like the waterfowl biologist type work um sorry rephrase that one i kind of missed missed you there so Sure, sure. No, the, yeah, the question was just with the waterfowl biology work, like, you know, what all do you do in that? Oh, our, our, our program is, is really super diverse. We've done a lot of uh, effects of wetland management. So, you know, once wetlands are restored, we tend not to do a very good job of understanding what the returns are on that. And so we've actually worked with state and federal biologists to understand uh, based on different types of management scenarios, what types of foods you get for ducks and then what that use is, but even beyond ducks, like how does it affect water quality, um, other wetland wildlife and things as well. So we have a, we have a really pretty diverse program. We'll get into some of the mallard genetic stuff we do. Uh, the bulk of the work that we've done is on duck migration and how weather influences that as well as, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I hate to throw the word climate change out there, right? But I think we're all seeing some some shifts that are going on, and so we're trying to understand what that means for the for the day to day duck hunter, and then what it means for the ducks themselves as far as how they, um, you know, can can meet their needs and and survive and reproduce as well. Definitely, definitely. Hmm. So, um, kind of to step back a little bit, you know, um, like we mentioned at the beginning, you're a duck hunter, and you know, I think that's you know pretty important as far as like um you kind of have um uh, a horse in the race when it comes to like waterfowl and and things being decided correctly you know through science you also love 
waterfowl hunting and you're passionate about it. So like what came first for you? Was it the hunting or, or your work? So I was a, I was in the forestry industry for a while. I have a forestry degree for my undergrad work um, at ESF actually, and then went on to do wildlife things later. I, I just discovered that I liked duck hunting a lot more about the third, fourth year of my degree. Um, I was lucky to have a lot of really cool marshes right down the road from where I went to school and I ditched class a ton. And I tell my students, I'm like, don't do what I did unless you do it like I did it, which was I took a book bag full of like plant and bird ID books out into the marsh. And I just I mean, I I went to physics like three times and got like a B minus. Right. Um, I took football physics. So we're right next to Syracuse University's <laughs> campus and it's what the football players take so they can pass physics. So like 80 percent of your grade is just going to lab. Um, so I, I went to the first day of class, I took the midterm and I took the final. Um, and so that's kind of where I found my passion was just from buggering off from class and, and hiking around marshes and started a duck hunt and then, you know, really got into it, um, you know, a lot over my career. And so I would say I grew up as a hunter. Um, my, my dad was a school teacher. We had a, uh, kind of a hunting cap at the, at the end of a dead end Valley that in, in Western New York, that was our, that was our house. And, uh, he would he would regularly shoot deer before school, and he'd say, "You kids have the day off," and we would skin a deer and, and put it in the freezer. Right, so I grew up in a very hunting uh, farm community oriented family, and decided to go to forestry school, but then discovered that I really like this wildlife thing, and and then got into the duck migration thing because the stuff we'll get into the guts of and talk about more here, guys, is that I wanted to find a way to shoot more ducks, and I didn't realize I couldn't figure out how some days I would go out and see no ducks and the next day I'd be covered up. And I, and I realized as I was going to get older that I wasn't going to just have every day to go. And so I wanted to be able to pick kind of the best days to go. And so the science of duck migration and the weather severity index stuff that we use on the file weather podcast came from that drive to understand, you know, how am I more effective at the days I picked to go? Because I realized, as, as, as I said, like, as I went on my career, my days were going to get busier and I wasn't going to be able to go every single day. So, yeah, it's a lot of the guts of the beginning of it. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's super cool. That's a, a super cool story hearing about, like, how your dad brought you into hunting. Um, so it wasn't foreign to you, you know, as, as you, you entered your career in, in college and and then got into the the waterfowl stuff as well. So uh, yeah, that's a uh, you know a, a lot of people don't have um, that entry to hunting that you had with your dad. So that's super cool um, to hear about that. But let's continue on to the the foul weather um, podcast and foul weather co that you've been working on. And and uh, yeah, let's let's hear about um, about that. Yeah, that's one. I mean, if you go back and look for, I think it was called like the weekly duck migration forecast on YouTube, we did something for several years on that. And I just realized we either needed to back out of it completely or or do it a different way so that we had uh, quality platforms and could build out a larger audience. And so I got together um, a team of folks and we just kind of decided to move forward and in, in fact this year we almost didn't didn't do the foul weather uh podcast because we were kind of up against the wall time wise getting towards october and i i said look we're we need to launch it this year because it's an el nino year and here's what ha- what this is <laughs> this is how much i mean i'll toot my own horn here a little bit 
I said, we need to do it this year because my guess is that El Nino is going to cause some of the mildest conditions we've seen in years, and it's already a drought in the mid-continent. And when it comes between Christmas and New Year's, people are going to lose their you-know-what when ducks don't show up in, like, Arkansas and Mississippi and Louisiana. And guess what happened? I mean, the the (laughs) social media stuff just went off the hook completely because they didn't have ducks. And so the comment was, if we're going to get traction and have listeners and in an audience, we've got to do it this year. Because if it was a typical year and ducks just showed up, eh, you know, nobody seems to, you know, be as interested in it. So um, we 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 launched the Foul Weather Podcast this year, which uses the science behind duck migration, uh, the mathematical models that predict duck migration and we're doing something that nobody else does right there's a lot of reports out there about duck migration there's like migration alerts when there's like major events that happen like duh anybody could figure that out but what we've done is is kind of put real numbers to what drives duck migration that we've from scientific publications with colleagues and i and we on a weekly basis uh produce uh it's the only forecast out there so we can tell you whether thursday friday saturday you know, which day in the coming week is going to be best for migration. And that's early ducks like pintails and, you know, green winged teal and gadwall and stuff. And then also, you know, the lighter migration like the mallards and black ducks and such. We, we're not into geese and diving ducks yet, but we're we're currently working on, on those mathematical models as well. So we can do that stuff too. Yeah. You're missing out on not having the diving ducks on there yet. <laughs> I tell you, though, here's the thing is that dabbling ducks are... I think of all waterfall harvest, I think they're like two-thirds of all the harvest. So that's, you know, all your puddle ducks, right? All the ducks that feed in the shallow marsh stuff. And that, so if you throw diving ducks and geese and stuff in there, I, I, I believe that, that those are, that's two-thirds of the harvest. So we've captured a bunch of it already. I mean, mallards, mm-hmm. mallards are 25% of the duck harvest, right? Mm. So that's why we do focus, and originally we had focused a lot on mallards, and we continue to do so because they're, probably one of the most sought after birds so and they taste they taste pretty damn good on a grill too (laughs) oh yeah definitely (laughs) yeah Yeah, hunter's uh me and hunter have a little bit of back and forth here and there because he uh he loves his divers and i you know i love my puddlers and um you know we meet in the middle on on a lot of things but uh (laughs) that's just a little bit of a callback to our uh our rivalry on on the subject but uh that's fine um, yeah yeah, it's super cool to to see what uh what you got going on with with that and um you know, one kind of question is with your forecast, will you be able to conclu- include like reverse migrations? I'm not a huge fan of that term. I think it happens okay. some, but I don't think sure. it's as much of a thing as, 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 as people think, right? Like when we track birds, we don't see a lot of that bounce back. There's some of it that happens on, on certain, certain years. Um, but I, to some extent, I think that it's more potentially a redistribution of birds when things get mild. Like they they concentrate on rivers and big lakes, and then they and that, so everybody sees them disappear, and their marshes might freeze, and then when the marshes thaw, they show back up. Like we have that here in the right, Finger right. Lakes. Like the ducks just go to the Finger Lakes, like a couple miles away, and then as soon as it thaws out, they go back into the marshes. So some of it is perception rather than what ducks are are actually doing right because those big movements are those big movements aren't easy for these birds right um if they're getting super banged up like the one that i do know of is like on the marshes on western lake erie 
uh, kind of northwest Ohio. Those birds will just bump down to like the Ohio River Valley and then come back north. Like we know that's mm-hmm. a thing. So there's some of these like short short movements back and forth, but I wouldn't say it's like a major thing. I think we talk about it more than it really happens. Yeah, hmm. gotcha. And, and maybe that's it. like it's, like we talked about at the beginning. Uh, some of the things you just hear, which maybe you consider fact. And this is kind of maybe correct me if, if I'm wrong on this. This is what I've heard about it. All right, as far as uh, like reverse migrations, um, they don't happen in the most part till January, till after the the winter solstice, when the days start to get longer. Um, so you're looking at like what later January, and then on a warm up and a south mm-hmm. wind, um, you could have a potential like reverse migration. So. Um, like I said, that's not very much of the season. And is it just like a, a duck hunter perception or is it a, you know, is there any science base behind that? I, I think Maybe it's a I'm good one on that we could, <laughs> I think it's a, no, it's, I think it's a good one we could look into more. We have not investigated it a lot, right? But there mm-hmm. is a time, you got to think about this, and this is where I always have these discussions with folks way in the deep south. And they're like, why aren't ducks here? Why don't they come to the south like they used to? I'm like, look, if it's just warm and there's no snow, why would you cross four state lines and four different opening seasons when all you're doing at the end of that season is go back north, right? Right. And this happened. I spent two winters for my doctoral work on Lake Ontario, right? I We shot 750 birds with research collection permits, right, of diving <laughs> ducks over two winters on Lake Ontario. We didn't start wow. collecting birds for research until December 20th, and we finished like early mid-March in both years. And all we couldn't even launch boats, so all I did on Lake Ontario was use a canoe and two Chesapeake <laughs> Bay retrievers to, to retrieve birds. But what it seemed to be is that by the third, fourth week of January, no matter how nasty that weather got, those birds weren't even going any further south. Like, they were done. They were done. That's mm. why I was. people are like, I want the season to go into February. I'm like, I don't think it matters. Because at some point, the days are so long, the only way these birds are going is is back north, right? They got their brain right. set on breeding. They're not thinking about anything else at that point. They're just waiting for the weather to break to get into courtship mode. You know, if you're diving ducks, they pair late um, after the kind of winter has happened that's different than like a mallard that starts actually pairing mm-hmm. like October. And their brains are just simply set on going one direction at some point. And they seem to really sit it out. That's why some of these like when we get, uh, you know, starvation events in ducks, it happens in March most of the time because their brains mm-hmm. just aren't wired to leave anymore. They're just kind of mm-hmm. stuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, see, like, I've noticed that on the Mississippi here where we'll, like, freeze up. And the river in a lot of places won't freeze entirely. It'll freeze pockets, and then there'll be little open water pockets. And it'll be, you know, dead of winter, frozen. You could drive a car out on the river, and then there'll be these little pockets, and every pocket's got all the birds in it. And it's just like, they just don't want to move. doesn't matter what happens. They'll just be in the pocket tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. it's more common with divers over here than we don't really see mallards do that. But we definitely see it with, like, canvasbacks and sometimes bluebills, but definitely canvasbacks and golden isles will do stuff like that. Yeah, they can at least dive and get a little bit of food to keep them mm-hmm. in some type of a shape, right? So, you know, most of yep. these birds are actually losing, winter, uh, losing weight throughout winter. And it's not always food-oriented. It's just that... Once you get fat, they just kind of sit still and wait it out, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's one of the problems in the in the deep south with mallards. Like they're paired primarily, and if they can just go sit behind a fallen down oak tree and and not move for two months, that's probably their best. The only thing they have to do is once they're paired is survive, and then once once the weather breaks in spring, uh, they get fat and they go back north. They don't carry that weight really. 
uh, throughout so the winter. So when does that pairing normally happen? Is that is that like weather based or is that just calendar based when they start to pair? It, it really depends on species, right? But if you want to just talk about mallards, it starts in October. Um, it's largely done by December for, for most birds. And then if that pair bond gets broken, that female typically pairs back really, really pretty quickly. And in some captive studies, we'll, we're going to cover this on Fall Weather Podcast stuff, I think, this week. I got a whole pile of homework to do and try to watch football over the weekend, too, before I do this one. <laughs> but I just got to go back to the literature. But I think from the captive stuff, when they broke pair bonds late, like females, they're not picky. Like it's way better to be paired than not paired. So it takes them like 15 minutes to find another hmm. dude to hang out with. So as I've always, I tell my students, I'm like, do not take dating advice from birds. It is, it is messed up, right? Like it's, there's like tons of cheating and, and, you know, extra pair copulations. And like, if your dude dies, you're just like, Oh, I'm just going to go, you know, sleep with a neighbor. So I mean, it's, it's kind of messed up. Yeah. But it, it makes sense. Cause uh, being paired kind of confers uh, dominance and, and finding food and stuff. So, there's no such thing as an unpaired female uh, mallard that exists out there, really. Hmm. So you're saying like, it makes sense that if they're paired up, they're just waiting to go back north and breed. So they're only going to move if they have to, right? They're only going to move to food if they have to, and they're only going to move back if they're getting pressured off of the food. Yep. And so that, that kind of makes sense on like why I feel like, bro science, I feel like that up here I'm in, I'm in Iowa – we kind of have an easier time patterning birds than I feel like a lot of guys I talk to down south because, like, they're, they're I'm shooting them in October and they must not be paired up, must be still moving around trying to figure stuff out. Does that seem right or is that just off in the weeds, total bro science? No, they're just also dumber in the post and they haven't seen a lot of guns yet, right? Like, my wife and I shot marshes here in New York and and we had some birds come in and it was a, it was a flight day. And I had a sense it was going to be a good day. We pushed through some ice and got out there and I was like, wow. I mean, as soon as the sun came up, it was just, you know, nonstop bunches of like anywhere from five to 30 birds coming high. You could, we, we run spinners all the time. We don't really run pulsers or anything. We just run spinners and cattail marshes. And it's like, we, we don't get that effect of like, oh, they're, they're spinner shy for the most part. Hmm. Right. Like, yeah, four or five days in, if they're stale birds, they start to get that, but I, I mean, I think we shot birds today that their feet had never touched U.S. soil before, before we shot them. I'm talking birds hanging, you know, yards behind the spinner and shooting them at, like, shooting them at 10 yards and shooting their heads off. And you hit them with a call, and they just lock up, and they do, like, two turns and drop right in. And so some of, some of what's going on is just super, super naive birds are really easy to kill. And the further they get down the flyway, the less naive they are. They've pretty much seen everything, right? So I think, I think that's some of it. There is a component of pairing that is still going on, too. So may like drakes are pretty susceptible um at a certain time of year to get to get shot as well so i don't mm. think that's straight up bro science i think you got your head screwed on straight so <laughs> sweet yeah <laughs> that was oh, man that's a that's a high compliment for a hunter though <laughs> <laughs> um so well, let's talk about your migration forecast and that's something that you, like you said is super unique to you um because a lot of people can say hey this is where we saw the ducks, but um, what you're doing is well beyond that. We're saying you're saying where the ducks are going to be. So uh, that's just uh, honestly, I never would have even thought that's possible. Um, you know, but it's like a weather forecast. You can look at it ahead of time and and uh, have some amount of uh, accuracy in that prediction. So let, let's hear let's hear about that. Yeah, so it's really simple, and 
a lot of other scientists have tried to pick it apart. But when they put backpacks onto birds, lo and behold, they found that temperature and snow cover were also the things that made those birds move. So to start out, we paired up, uh, we, we worked with the Missouri Department of Conservation. We got their waterfall survey data. They have some of the best uh, waterfall survey data, like once every two weeks, a long-term data set from their waterfall conservation areas. So we got those data of, of duck abundance at those areas, and then we paired it with nearby weather stations. And what we wanted to know is what over between those two weeks, what weather combinations caused increases in birds and then decreases in birds, right? So what was the weather that was really to the greatest, uh, explain the most variation in that change in abundance of birds at any location. And we found that it was in this, I think we talk about this in the blind as duck hunters, but we like literally put numbers to it. Right. So it's how cold is it on any given day? How many days in a row has it been below freezing? Cause that affects wetland icing and whether they can even land in a wetland as well as the energy output of the bird. Uh, it was how much snow is on the ground in inches, and then how many days in a row has there been measurable snow, like one inch, that would interfere with field feeding. And so you just add those numbers together to get this weather severity index, and that was what best explained the abundance of birds at any one location. So is it going to always – it's not going to tell you the – uh, exact number of birds at any location or anything like that. And it doesn't mean that just because I say it's a migration day, it doesn't mean every bird is leaving, right? Individual birds are different. But at like the broad scale, it does a really good job to tell people whether it's a migration day or not, right? And I've had people email me already this year be like, you told me Thursday was going to be good and there were no ducks. And I'm like, well, yeah, but uh, like eight other people emailed me and said they were piled up with ducks. So like each person's individual experience is going to be different. I'm like, okay, dude, did you literally hunt this place every single day for the last two weeks too? He's like, well, yeah, that's what we do. I'm like, okay, that's part of it as well, right? Like, But <laughs> right. at the broad scale, it does a really good job of, of tracking uh, movements of birds. So we calculate that at about at like – a lot of stations. I can't remember how many I calculated for. It takes me about two hours to run all the calculations each Sunday and then kind of interpret them and then put that migration forecast out. And so it's it's literally a number and there's a threshold at which mallard numbers or gadwall numbers or widgeon numbers should start to decrease at, at a location. And it also gives us, if we calculate these on a yearly basis, it lets us compare among years is how is the weather that is how ducks interpret weather, you know, different from, from the year before. And I think that's what's going to be fun about the Fall Weather Podcast is year after year, we're going to be able to compare, you know, one year to the next. Right now, the last time I ran all these numbers was like 2018. Um, and this year was astronomically warmer than 2018, I can tell you that. But yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So so one thing you didn't mention, and maybe that plays into your, your weather severity index that, that a lot of duck hunters talk about is north winds. Mm-hmm. Um, how much does that play into the, the the migration as well? I think it does a bit. We don't we don't deal with wind. Winds are really finicky from an analytical standpoint because they change really quickly. Um, the timing of them exactly really matters. But the thing is, is when you have declining temperatures and snow events occurring, you you very often have north winds that are associated with right. that, right? So what I do is I look at the weather severity index values, and then uh, I go kind of like hour by hour. I run the slider, and I look at the wind. There's a bunch of different apps I use, but I look at the wind direction. 
And then I try to also make an interpretation uh, based on wind. Like if there's three days where weather severity index says they should be declining, um, say in, in South Dakota, right? And But there's really not, they're all hard, hard west winds and not uh, north winds. Maybe on that third day, I'll, I'll make the comment, like it's most likely that these birds are going to move on this evening, right? Uh, cloudless mm-hmm. night, I mean, birds use the stars to navigate as well. So cloudless nights actually matter a lot. And for Hunter, like I think cloudless uh, nights with full moons for for like bluebills. We haven't gotten into it yet, but I'm pretty sure the first full moon in October, as long as it's not the first week of October, is almost always a huge bluebill movement across the continent. Mm-hmm. And so those are just kind of things we know that we haven't put numbers to yet. Um, but there's other pieces that I, from from my own bro science, <laughs> that I pick <laughs> from to um, to kind of add to the to the flavor of it to probably give a more accurate depiction of which day they're going to move. Yeah. So does that like moon phase navigating by the stars? Is that what most people when they're like referring to like calendar birds? Because like ours here, it's it's pretty calendar based for our divers, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I like to hunt them is because like oh I know this week generally they're gonna be here. Is that calendar bird? Is that based on the moon, or is that like a, just a totally separate based on like uh, the days, lengths of days, stuff like that? Yeah, so nothing against you guys, but I hate the term calendar birds because <laughs> when we and I haven't run it for divers yet. Like my sense is that's what they do, okay. but almost every one of these birds is going to still adjust with weather. So when we run photo period, right? So like the day length is is adjusted is is correlated to the calendar, right? So as days get shorter. Uh, people think like the, the you know the green wing tail just our calendar migrators they just migrate early right so I'm just going to touch on the dabbling ducks that we we work with mostly mm-hmm. because I don't I don't know about diving ducks there may be something to that as I said before um, but it's not that they are not migrating based on the amount of day length but that when you put weather factors in with that that it's a better predictor of the timing of migration than the day length cue alone, right? So what that, it, because here's the problem, the weather, as the days get shorter, the weather gets colder. So those two things are generally correlated through time. But like this year, the the migration was really delayed with a lot of the birds that people consider calendar migrators, like teal and pintails and get, anything but a mallard, right? For dabbling mm-hmm. ducks, they consider uh, calendar migrators. But the reality is, is they really adjust. The only one that really is more so is a blue wing teal. Right, because most of those birds, this says this gets into some deep science of like, um, let's go with all of our forest birds like scarlet tanagers and Baltimore Orioles and stuff. They go to to Central America and South America, so they're leaving an environment where they breed that is super. Um, they, they can't stay there for the winter, right? And they're going to an environment that is super stable all year, right? So once they get all the breeding stuff done, they just go. Right, they just go because mm-hmm. they're going to a stable environment. That's basically what a blue wing teal does. A blue wing teal goes to the prairies in a very uh, uh, temporary environment, does what it needs to do, and if it's going to somewhere in central, like Yucatan Peninsula, Puerto Rico, the Amazon River Valley, where some of them go, they just leave. They just leave the continent because there's no reason to kind of hang out. All these other birds are exploiting resources as they go south, right? And they can hang further north 
and still be able to potentially exploit resources where a blueing teal is is the wimpiest duck we have and there's no way they're going to do that right so all these species adjust to to some extent right i i put the thing on the on the facebook page the like forbes pinta uh sorry gadwall were two thousand percent above normal (laughs) because they usually don't have them this time of year on the illinois river so they had like mm-hmm. 19,000 of them instead of like 900 or something like that, like they'd normally have. So there is more, there's almost all these birds uh, adjust to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, this, this week you just, you've already put out your, uh, your forecast for the week and you're, you're kind of talking about that, how um, we got a weather system coming in and um, you know, a lot of these birds have delayed. So um, is it about to be a, a crazy migration this week? I didn't want to go like, hey, it's going to be a barn burner because, you know, everybody's like really jaded about this year. There's the whole paper ducks controversy going around and there's just less ducks out there. And some people just have bad habitat right now. Like I went to Mississippi and never fired a shot. It was the worst I've ever seen it. Worst I've ever seen. Mm. Um, Just dry. And I mean, my friend put, you know, he put water on a bean field. It had no food in it. And with the hope of just attracting some birds, pumped it on there. And there just weren't birds around, right? So I didn't want to, like, basically say, hey, you're going to have ducks everywhere. But we're starting to get rain. There is more habitat than there was. It's still dry. But we've got some, you know, water sitting on the landscape in the Mississippi Louisville Valley. And mostly further east of that, right, when you start to get into Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. But we've got some... This week's forecast is pretty good. Like, everything's looking really good. Next week is, I'm afraid it's going to get too cold, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, it looks like there's a possibility that the entirety of Arkansas will have at least a dusting of snow and be below freezing for maybe two, three days. Um, that I'm a little worried that we go went from zero to 100 miles an hour too fast and birds are just going to blow by those places. I think coastal Texas, coastal Louisiana... Um, the South Atlantic coast should be like, I, I would, I would just take next two weeks off. <laughs> so there so is, it, there be. is a possible, there is a possibility the last week of January is going to really warm up too. So I wouldn't wait till the last second. Like if you're going to take time, I would take it now. I always have to put this caveat on it though, real quick is always be safe. Cause I always, I'm always worried about people like, Oh, I have to go on Thursday. Cause the file weather podcast said, so I'm like, still use your brain right like if it's (laughs) massive floodwaters or it's a freaking blizzard and you're in mississippi like i lived in mississippi for three years i mean there's no such thing as a snowplow right so like use your brain about when to go so yeah so i guess like that leads into like if you had three days off of work you're getting a plane ticket where are you going this next week (sighs) (laughs) Putting them on the spot, man. Yeah, I mean, don't I, you don't need to highlight a specific area, but you know, give a generic. Go south, <laughs> go south for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, okay. I think I think the Texas coast is going to be insane by like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, probably more like Tuesday, Wednesday of next week. Um, I think South Carolina folks are actually going to get a pretty good push of birds, and specifically Gadwall. Like if they get mallards, good for them. They haven't had a good mallard migration in years. Um, but I think most of that's coming out of the mid-continent, right? Uh, I think coastal, anywhere in the Atchafalaya in Louisiana and, uh, you know, kind of western Louisiana duck country is is going to be 
hot, hot, hot. I'm a little worried that a lot of Arkansas and the northern delta in Mississippi and stuff is still too dry to really mm. hold a lot. Of, like, I think you can kill birds. They're going to be concentrated. But I think they're going to get stale really quick because unless we get a lot of rain with that, they're just not going to have enough places to go. And they're just going to bugger off because they will only take so much pressure before they say, screw it, this isn't worth being here with without right. you know enough habitat and food to find. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me and Hunter are actually going somewhere. Um, we won't say where. <laughs> we'll tell you afterwards and, and get your opinion on it. But um, yeah, we're, we got a we got a impromptu duck trip planned for this weekend. Yeah, and uh, we're excited. Well, I think so. any big water. I mean, any big big water too, like Kentucky, Tennessee. Um, especially if it gets really cold, like Memphis isn't supposed to get above freezing for like a 48 hour period. Right. So anything with big water mm-hmm. that has some resources that you can still get a boat in or, you know, that doesn't ice up too much. Um, I think you'll be, I think you're going to be in really good shape in a lot of places. I, I do want to tell people though, like, you know, be, be prepared because I don't think this isn't, this isn't cold to fool around with. Right. Um, right. The, yeah. the Kansas city dolphins game on Saturday night is supposed to be like record cold for a football game in kansas city so you right. know use that as an well, example of to be zero degrees i mean really think about your gear um because it's <laughs> it's going to be it's it's going to be real yeah oh definitely mm-hmm. definitely so kind of let's 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 uh well anything else that we that we missed as far as talking about your migration forecast and the science that goes beyond it before we uh before we jump to the next subject we don't do the pacific flyway yet and mm. it's because that migration's weird, right? It's the other side of the Rockies. The weather's totally different. Um, where they derive their birds from is a little different. Um, some of them cross the Rockies. Some of them come straight down from Alaska. And <clears throat> we're really seeking to come up with those models. And we've been asked for them like about a half dozen times this year from 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 listeners. And the comment is, and this is where I try to keep my my kind of research life and my podcast life is like two separate things because the podcast is its own little uh, business. We, we, I think we've made like negative uh, $2,000 so far or something. So <laughs> you guys are, you get the podcast deal, right? It's like not, it's not like you're rolling in money. Um, but, you know, students cost money and we're actually looking for somebody to sponsor some research to actually focus on that, on that Pacific stuff. And so if there's anybody out there that's really interested in weather severity index things for the Pacific flyway, you know, look us, look us up. We're, we're, we're definitely interested in supporting another student to get that stuff done at the, at the university. Hmm. Definitely. Hmm. So, uh, so the next subject I wanted to kind of pick your brain on, um, would be the hybrid duck issue. And I think that's um, kind of cropped up um, a lot more over the last year as far as the conversation. We actually had Ben Lukanen on in like March, I believe, uh, earlier this year. I saw an article by him, actually got passed on by a buddy to me. Uh, and that's the first I heard anything of it. And since, you know, it's uh, um, almost caught on like wildfire, a lot of, a lot of conversation around it. So um, let's, let's hear the, what you have to, to say about it. Yeah, I'm in the middle of that too. Um, I've, you know, Ben and I are kind of working on stuff a little bit together. Uh, Phil Lovretsky, who's kind of the genetics guru on the the whole mallard complex thing, is um, a co um, 
researcher with myself on a we actually got a national science foundation grant to study that so super jazzed about that we went to the atlantic flyway and they kind of passed on it um which i was kind of surprised but national science foundation gave us almost a million dollars to work on uh mallard genetics and the effect really what they're interested in and is the effects of just how we domesticate animals and then release them into the wild and what that means to wild populations. And we're really just using the mallard as, as an example. I don't want to get too into the weeds of all the guts of it, right? But if folks aren't aware, you know, for 40-some well, years, we were releasing a half million uh, game farm mallards um, on the East Coast to a large degree. And they're, they're a totally different beast. They're not even North American wild mallards. They're, they're all, all derived from Europe. Um, they're very distinct animals. They're shaped differently. We've... We've looked at um, physically what they look like. Their bills are different. Their legs are longer. Their wings are shorter, right? Like lots of funky stuff going on with them. And that's probably a result of being bred in captivity for a very, very long time. You can start to change what an animal looks like. Same thing happens in quail and pheasants and salmon and and everything. Um, But from a migration standpoint, since we're talking about that and kind of the foul weather podcast stuff here too, is that in that in that migration forecast is that that duck has no ancestral ground it has no instinctive drive that game farm bird to migrate to anywhere like the arkansas let's say the arkansas big woods right like birds just show up in the arkansas big woods from the prairies and there they're almost 100 percent wild mallards there but a lot of our east coast birds just seem to they only go as far as they have to right they have no real drive to go to any ancestral ground whatsoever and so my sense is is that as those birds interbreed and those genetics get into the wild population, it's likely that that's actually one of the factors of maybe why mallards don't show up to South Carolina anymore, right? Is that, that, that the wild mallard that used to come out of the Great Lakes region and go to kind of that southeast coast is genetically pr- potentially nearly extinct, right? What I find funny is that as ducks don't show up to the southeast coast, what does South Carolina do? They dump out more game farm mallards. And so they're probably actually exacerbating their own problem, right? I do want to caveat that, though. All of this is a hypothesis. We have a new PhD student starting with us that's going to really dig into uh, this this type of question, right? He's going to have a whole genome analysis of mallards and be able to find the coding. This is like... Um, you can you can get tested if you are predisposed for a certain type of disease, right? And that's just looking for a code in your genetic material. So we can we can find mallards like we'll get a mallard that has like a really screwy bill, right? Shorter, taller, wider. It's more goose like. It's more European like. And we can actually find the coding in the in the you know the genetic code for that shaped bill. We can also find the genetic code for. Uh, birds that show up earlier at southern latitudes right and so they may be predisposed to that behavior just like you might be predisposed Mm. to some type of a disease right Mm. um so that's that's kind of where we're headed with it but i want to really like we always get ahead because the story's really cool right (laughs) there's all these effed up mallards out there and it's screwing up the mallard population it's screwing up the migration but what we always want to remind people is like we're still working on this and science does not happen overnight like we're we're going to be probably five years down the line before we actually get like enough information to get this stuff out there. But we're working, man, I don't sleep a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so with this, man, this like just hearing about it, honestly, it meant like, 
you know, even the first time I heard it, and even now, every time I hear it, it's just like, man, I really hate to hear that that's, you know, a thing. Um, and it makes you worried as a duck hunter. Um, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to be an alarmist yeah. without reason, yes. you know. Yes, um, exactly, exactly. Because let me so, let me so, just jump on this because I get this topic all the time. Sure. I hate to cut you off, but, like, people's livelihoods depend on this. When we bought a bunch of game farm mallards for our research, right, came from a town that calls themselves the duck capital of the world, right? The, if they're, like, three generations of a, of a mallard, you know, breeding operation there they now sell like eighty thousand birds a year it used to be up in the 200 they have a parade every year that surrounds the mallard there's a statue in town of the mallard it's part of their culture (laughs) so we better be right to be like "Mm, you can't do that right Mm -hmm. like it really needs to be a if it's a smoking gun this is where i talk to folks that like even folks that go to shooting operations right wealthy folks that help fund our research I'm like, look, if this is the going to be the demise of the mallard population in North America, wouldn't you want to know that? There's some of right, them that are yeah. like, screw it, I'm 95 and I just want to shoot as many ducks as I can till I die. I'm like, okay. Not an right, argument yeah. I would go with, but fine. And But most <laughs> folks are like, yeah, yeah, we'll give you guys some money to, to work on this because we want to know like, if we're contributing to the demise of the mallard population, right? Hmm. The country of France right now is releasing like 1.4 million game farm mallards per year. The country of wow. France, like, I don't know how big it is, but it's nowhere even near the size of the U.S., right? 1.4 mm-hmm. million. Their wintering population of wild mallards that they estimate on the Mediterranean and on their marshes in southern France is only 270,000. They oh have goodness. basically yeah, yeah. turned mallards in France into a put-and-take operation on an annual basis. Can you imagine mm. that? I don't even... <laughs> right? Like, sure, I tell them the mid-continent people that where you're just going to have to, like, pump out 8 million mallards each year. So, mm. yeah. it's So that's what we're trying to make sure doesn't happen, you know? And we've got a lot of people that are, like, uh, very up in arms about it because they like, you know, their shooting operations and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I always try to, like, temper it. I'm like, look, we're... We're just trying to find out if it's a problem. If it's not, then we check that box. Okay. So to go to... Sure. So, so like the people in South Carolina, like the folks down there in South Carolina, where they're wintering birds that were, that were coming there, is that like in the future? <laughs> this is probably a loaded question. Uh, is, there, is there any way to ever fix that? Bring it back to what it was. So where we always go with this is that the most likely solution to this is to potentially manage the genetics in the future. And I don't know what all that looks like, right? But rather than say you can't do that, there are ways that you could manage the genetic composition of populations to make them more diverse and maybe not as maladapted to the wild environment. And so the PhD student we have coming on is actually going to look for what traits continue to exist or are purged from the population. And the ones that are purged really quickly are probably those that are deleterious, that, that are negative for survival and reproduction and such, right? Otherwise, they would continue to exist in that hybrid wild by game farm population. So if they start to disappear, um, those are probably the ones that, for whatever reason, are, are maladaptive to, the, to being hmm. in the wild. Those birds just aren't surviving. So then we could focus and say to game farm folks, hypothetically, like, 
hey, you might want to um, try to select for birds in your population with longer wings or shorter legs or something like that, right? Or, yeah. you know, the other way to look at it, and this is a long stretch, but you could amend the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and actually bring some wild birds in to, to breed with those birds as well. That's a huge stretch to say that that's something that would happen. Hmm. Um, but these birds are... I mean, they're, they're super inbred, and there's not a lot of trading around of, of genetics and stuff, as, as far as we're aware. So that's, that's a lot of what's, what's going on. Is it's the, I mean, you can collect these, – these birds look like siblings across the country, right? You get a bird from California and a bird from New Jersey and a bird from Alabama, and they look like brothers and sisters genetically. Hmm. You're talking about the, the farm, farm-raised the farm ones. ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So – this I, I I've read a study a while ago about bass and fishing, and about how there's like a catchability trait within bass, about like how they they did a research essentially in a pond. I don't remember the exact study, but they tagged the fish, tracked how often they got caught, and then tagged the offspring of the fish, and then ta- realized how often they got caught. And they found that like the catchability was genetic to a certain degree. For whatever reason, they found that there was some correlation between catchability and being genetic. Is there any sort of like, do they expect that to be the same with mallards with like the shootability or like, I mean, obviously coming in decoy, stuff like that is, could that be something that gets found in that kind of genetic research you're talking about? I don't think so. Um, I think that one's a stretch for us to get to just given the scale at which we're Mm -hmm. sampling birds. Right. Um, you know, but there is this phenomenon of, of, uh, what they call them, you know, Halloween mallards that show up in the South, right? Like when I worked at Mississippi State, that was this, like they always talk about the Halloween mallards and those are the ones that are there on opening day. And so I think one of the things we really want to do is sample those birds and then sample birds that stay North or birds that show up later and see if there is some, you know, genetic coding for showing up, showing up earlier. Um, Hmm. And those birds might be more susceptible to being shot. This is always one of the questions we get is like, did we shoot so damn many of these things at Southern latitudes that show up early and are susceptible that we're changing the genetic composition of the population? There's a lot of mixing, I mean, Mm -hmm. in mallards, right? And a lot of flyway shifting and things like that. So that probably washes all that stuff out. Um, But, you know, at at the grand scale, Hunter, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's birds that are probably genetically predisposed to be idiots, just like there's, you know, um, yeah, you can say it, that people that, that are you remember the kids in, in you know in elementary school that just did dumb stuff all the time. I mean, there's probably some yeah. of that's learned, but there's also some like ADD stuff going on there, right? So yeah, yeah, um, there is there is some genetic coding for behaviors, right? But I don't want to act like. Um, if that doesn't get washed out at the grand geographic scale, I could see it with the bass in the pond situation you're talking yeah. about. But at that broader scale, it probably gets washed out pretty quick by by mixing hmm. of breeding stocks. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, that's uh, definitely some good information. I don't know if I, I can call it good information, but uh, <laughs> you know, we, we uh, still a lot of work to be done. Is what it sounds like uh, on the grand scheme uh, of the whole thing. Um, yeah, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to die or say anything too much about it. Um, but I guess it just, it just, you know, it makes me a little worried, kind of hearing stuff like that. And I hope the science, mm-hmm. when it comes out, that we can find the the proper solutions moving forward for the, you know, for the the whole of duck hunting and the whole of the duck hunting population. Yeah, I agree. And this is where I always try to, you know, when I talk to flyway biologists and such, I'm like, are you are you making decisions based on 
you know, biology and or ethics. And I really like to think that there should be some separation there between those things. There may be somebody higher up in an agency that makes ethical decisions uh, based on social pressures and politics, but that biologists themselves should make decisions based on science and then pass that information on to the decision makers. And that that there's people that disagree with that. Uh, but I actually try to stay out of the decision making process, right? Like my job as a scientist is to is to produce unbiased research and then pass it on to the powers that be that that make decisions. And that that keeps me from being an advocacy scientist too, right? Try to just answer good questions and hand that information off. And then after that, I mean, I can bitch about it a lot, which I do. But <laughs> but I try to stay out of the right. decision making process as much as I can. All right, let's uh, let's let's keep moving forward here, and and um, something that that I wanted to touch on as well is the duck population, and you know um, we have everything from we kind of talked about it at the beginning with with how poor of a migration a lot of uh, southern folks have seen this year, mm-hmm. um, and people are already calling for three duck limits and thirty day seasons on Facebook and. Um, calling out the Fish and Wildlife Service for lying about duck numbers. And, you know, uh-huh. like you get all the bro science um, that you can imagine going on on Facebook. So um, where are we at on, on, on duck population? Well, I think the biggest thing we have to remember is that you really can't stockpile ducks, right? In the absence of harvest, right? This is really important. In the absence of hunter harvest, ducks don't live very long. And so think about sending them back to, you know, if we didn't shoot them, send them back to the prairies where it's getting dry and there are habitat issues with loss of grassland and things like that. You just can't, you can't get production from those birds when there isn't habitat for them to produce in, right? And so the prairies cycle all the time. And right now we're on a downward trend. It's, it's going dry again. And that's just how it's going to be, right? There hasn't been snowpack to fill potholes. Um, there's also been widespread wetland drainage, um, so that we've got we got a lot of like these like we're condensing them. So we take like four potholes that are small and really productive, and then make like one really big, you know, semi permanent wetland out of it, which is way less productive, right? And that's a lot of lack of. I mean, I don't want to get into the policies of wetland protection stuff, but you can't protect puddles basically, and ducks thrive in puddles and so we've seen a massive amount of wetland drainage um and just just you know prairies going dry at the same time and so you just can't send ducks back to nothing and then expect them to reproduce so as i said on the last podcast of you know where are the ducks and talking about paper ducks and stuff is um you just shoot them while you got them right the idea of stockpiling ducks like if you don't shoot them then there's going to be more ducks next year it's just if there's anything we've learned over the years it's just not a thing right and, you know, duck biologists have known this for 50 years, but it's really hard to get past the idea of, you know, a dead hen can't reproduce, right? Well, a hen that has no place to reproduce can't reproduce either, right? And that just might be the fact of, of, of where we're headed right now. And so people are all upset about not seeing ducks and, and thinking that surveys are wrong and such. But I just ran the numbers today. 
looked at the National Climate Report for the month of December, and it ranked 129, the month of December for the United States on average temperature, ranked 129 of 129 years. So December in the United States across the board was the hottest year since 1889. Oh, wow. So I don't know. If you're a duck, you're not in Arkansas. (laughs) Like by, 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 you know, by Christmas, that just wasn't going to be a thing. So we have less ducks. We have about 50% less ducks than we did at their peak years back, right? When things were booming and all that. Um, So we're like 6.1 million mallards right now, which is not great. But people say, well, why aren't we at 30 days and three ducks then? Well, because we've learned that shooting ducks isn't what drives duck populations, right? So just shoot ducks. And there's all kinds of safety nets in there, too. Um, I'm not... I'm not especially concerned about it. And that's even as a Atlantic flyway person that has like, you know, one eighth of the ducks that the central fly- uh, Mississippi flyway and stuff does. <laughs> so. Yeah. So like, I'm assuming you were pretty happy to see like your limits. Well, the mallard limits were two birds a day and now it's back up to four birds for mallards. I'm sure you're with yeah. that being said, you're probably glad that that happened then. Yeah. Because we had a really good season and I'm not a mallard purist, but that's largely what what we shoot uh and i would say you know my dog probably ended up with i don't know 40 percent more retrieves because we were at four instead of two uh mm-hmm. it i had a i had a great season and and you know my wife and i both shot a bunch of birds we got birds in the freezer we've been you know doing roast duck for appetizers for thanksgiving at the neighbors and all kinds of stuff that we wouldn't do i'd be like screw that these are mine (laughs) right like if i didn't have (laughs) leftover duck um so you know i think that kind of stuff has has an impact i i was very critical um i was really in the delta waterfall camp on this i was very critical of the going to two thing it was a real knee-jerk reaction because the atlantic flyway in my opinion had i mean they'd watched that that population plummet for like 20 years and just, I think, hoped it would recover. And when it didn't, they had to do something. And they they kind of sat on their hands. And then they they put together an integrated population model, which gives them a new harvest strategy. And so we went back to four. Nothing changed about the duck itself, just how we approach harvest did. Um, and, you know, I, I really like the integrated population model they have. I think it has some wonky bias in it, but it's nothing ridiculous. Uh, and... You know, so I think we're in a we're in a better spot for decision making with with mallards now. But yeah, I've been I've been through that. And um, the, the real quick though, the Atlantic Flyway folks, I respect them a lot. I mean, there's a lot. I, I was a tech section rep for the state of Maine for for two two and a half years myself and worked with them. Uh, but they are overly conservative, right? They, they every single time the lever they pull is reducing harvest, and I'm like, well, what about the hunters? They're like, oh, the hunters will be fine. I'm like. Pretty sure we lost a ton of scop hunters when we went to that garbage, uh, you know, restrictive regulation on scop, which there's a ton of literature out there now that says that hunting does not drive scop populations, but it's still the only lever we pull, which is, which is, you know, kind of BS. Yeah. So that kind of actually goes into one of the other things I was going to ask about, like the Pittman-Robertson Act and more hunters is more conservation dollars, which I mean, I'm sure a certain amount of that gets fed into programs that help us understand the birds better. So it's like, do you think that we really did lose a lot many birds? Did we lose more hunters due to the two bird limit in the Atlantic Flyway than the benefit would have been by their money going back into conservation? I think that's a better way to word that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we lost a ton of opportunity in the rural communities and the purchases, you know, that those folks make and, 
and all that. And I think we constantly slowly erode at that stuff. Access to hunting places is much more difficult than it used to be. And, uh, you know, we, we continue to struggle with, with numbers of duck hunters, which doesn't, you know, this, I'm, I'm conflicted because I'm like, well, I'd like more duck hunters, but it sure feels like the marshes are busier than they ever used to be. Right. Um, I, I, I feel like people used to go out on like opening day as like this huge tradition. And then I don't know, go deer hunting or do, they had, they had other jobs, right. They had other things, but now the same guys just seem to pound the same marsh, you know, day after day, after day, after day. So if we had... If we had more hunters, I think if culturally it was different, where it was a cultural thing where you just identified as a duck hunter who did it as a tradition on, you know, Thanksgiving morning and that was it, that's fine. But um, to get to get, you know, I'd be afraid to have four times as many duck hunters in my part of the world right now. Um, but you know, yeah, these things. I mean, when we went from four four mallards to two, you know, a lot of people said they they just kind of quit duck hunting for for a while during that period. Um, but it's a satisfaction thing too, right? Like, I don't know. I could go out and shoot, shoot two birds. Oh, I, I killed like 50 ducks over 25 days going every single day down the road and walking in and shooting two mallards and then leaving. And I could have shot four every single day. Um, was it, was it horrible? No, but would I have rather had, you know, a little more time in the marsh, work a few more birds, spend some more time with the dog, drink a cup of coffee, talk with my friends, kill four birds feed them to my neighbors instead of just keeping them in my freezer yeah i mean like there's there's stuff that's hard to quantify from that right like i don't diver hunt much anymore because the bluebill limit is it's so low you know hauling a Mm -hmm. layout boat out to shoot one duck like who does Mm -hmm. that you know like if you take three guys you're like oh we got three birds sweet like it's just not it's not worth it and to me it's kind of reduced my enjoyment of waterfall hunting because i did the things i do aren't as diverse as they used to be so yeah and see like i'm a big big diver hunter here in the mississippi we have a pool that's really good we'll spotlight it too much but it's really good we got a lot lot of staging birds here and the the two birds for i mean obviously the limits or the the populations but two for cans and we're allowed to scop after the first 15 days of season and it's like I mean, it's brutal to go out and you shoot your first two cans and then sit there and watch nothing. The rest of the watch cans land in the decoys, and that's all you can do is sit there and watch them. Yeah, Again, yeah, and I think that's where we've got to get we got to get this right because if it's not affecting the population, then it becomes a social carrying capacity thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like blue wing teal, I would never recommend it, but you can you could you could probably just shoot blue wings while they're on the continent and have no impact <laughs> on the population. I don't want to see a dead truckload full of blueing teal. I don't want to clean them. I don't want to see it. It's beyond my capacity to be okay with it, right? Um, but, you know, so whatever, it's four or six or whatever it is, that's fine. It has it has no impact. I think that's where we got to get. Hunters have been brainwashed enough because the only thing we seem to change is bag limits, right? as a reactionary type mechanism. I mean, it's, and it's not even bad. It's mostly days that kill ducks because most people don't kill more than like one or two ducks on any given day. Um, so it's literally the cumulative numbers of days that are the problem. Not, not the bag. If you ever had any population impact anyway, but I think we've just, you know, the whole paper ducks thing and people calling for reduced seasons and all that is because I think we've just pounded into the public that that's the lever we pull. And, the reality is, is that's probably less 
uh, necessary than what we've been fed, you know, over the years. And there's there's differing opinions on that. There's differing science, but you know, currently the science says you know these birds can take a, a lot more pressure. Uh, and they just the biggest thing is they rebound when when the habitat gets good. Their populations just take right off. I mean, look when the prairies got wet. What happened with mallards and all other birds? I mean, they just they recovered really really quickly and that's always that's that's just the nature of what they are and and how they respond to environmental change so one thing you keep mentioning is the pay for ducks thing that's something we haven't really you know it's that phrase uh covered on the podcast you want to dive into that a little bit well the idea is is that the you know if if they're saying there's 6.1 million ducks there's just not that many right that somehow the, the the breeding population survey must be wrong and there are potential issues with it. You know, the one that's been brought up is the spare males that are out there. If the, you know, because we count, we cause, because hens go off and nest, right? And you can't always count them. You've got to count males that are on the landscape that are presumably paired with females to get some reasonable estimate or you'd grossly underestimate the population. But if the proportion of males in the population becomes larger, which it which it has that might be due to female survival being lower we're not quite sure what's going on there it's happening in pintails it's happening in mallards seems to be happening oddly in wood ducks a little bit as well um but if you're counting those spare males as pairs there may actually not be a hen with them if the proportion of males in the population has increased there's always more males than females just because it's hard you know, it's a hard life being a, a female duck. Like, you know, you got to sit on the ground for 30 days. You got to lay eggs for 10 or 12 before that. I mean, it's it. And then the, just the sheer energy it takes to produce a clutch. And then you got to raise the brood. Males, you know, male ducks in nearly all species don't even help. Right. So they're they're pretty delinquent dudes mm. in general. Um, so there's some fear of that. But here's the thing. Like, I'm going to we're taking a bunch of students um, and we're going there's there is a uh, a research conference once every three years dedicated to waterfowl research. It's called the North American Duck Symposium. It's in Portland, Oregon in the first week of February. And there is literally a talk that specifically addresses this topic of what is the impact of spare males in the population that change in those ratios. So when people are like complaining about it and you hear about it on other podcasts and in the chatter out in the duck world, um, it's it's like it's a brand new thing and we're not looking at it right like it's we're working on it like i almost guarantee you the guy that's going to give that talk is probably working on it like right now as we're doing this interview so that information is 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 being worked into the whole entire process and so i i guess to the public i just want to say hey if there are paper ducks we got our finger on the pulse of it and you know as i said lots of times the sky's not falling i think the system genuinely works and you know just like me, I mean, we, when I go to this conference, we talk about duck hunting as much as is is duck science. So we're we're kind of all in this with with everybody. Awesome. So with the with the paper duck thing, and kind of you mentioned with the spare males and all that, you also talked about you know um, with hunters and in, in the harvest, um, and so you know there's certain sectors of duck hunters that would consider themselves, you know, maybe like mallard purist and they only shoot green heads, no hens. Um, I, f- I feel like you get a lot of uh, good old boys that, you know, that, that don't mind shooting their hens as part of their, you know, bag limit, you know, like science and the numbers obviously is built into that limit. Um, 
for my consideration mm-hmm. anyway. So is there is there something to passing on hens and only shooting green, or or what's the the take on that? I like to do it just because I like to do it because I can, and I like a strap of you know four green heads more than you know two green and two brown. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing that we can find science wise that shows that not shooting hens helps. But if you want to be conservative and you want to do that fine i don't think you should hen shame people because right we're all out there to have a good time it's fine i mean everybody jabs everybody in the blind and stuff like that but um i'm not shy about shooting hens but if i can uh if i can pick out green heads i you know i i will so Mm -hmm. had a really had a really cool uh hunt this year when we had a single bird left to shoot and my wife was with me and I pulled up and it was one of these older hens that has like that really strong gradient of color. And so it looked like a Drake and it was a dark day mm-hmm. and I pulled the trigger and just crunched this bird. And I, you know, we basically were just like holding out for, we had a bunch of hens come in singles and then we were just holding out for, for a green head. And she's like, you know, you idiot, you just shot the hen out of that bear. <laughs> so, that, you know, that's gonna, that's, and I, heck I've spent my whole life, looking at ducks and I teach ornithology and you know so those I knew I was shooting at a mallard at least but um and we knew <laughs> we had a hen that we could shoot left or a drake so it didn't matter uh but you know those mistakes happen I wouldn't I wouldn't sweat it too much uh but you know if you want to think that you're helping um you know go ahead and go ahead and shoot green heads you know but I, I wouldn't be too shy about it either way so I've always been told that that's more true with pintails than mallards, where like the pintail population is very male dominant, and that it's it might impact yeah. the pintail domination more. Now, bro, science don't know if that's based on anything. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's there's for some reason this massive number of uh, of male pintails in the population, and that's probably you know there's years with really bad reproduction, so you're not even putting males or females in, so you're looking at most of the adult population, and then hens. You know, pintail populations have just never recovered from massive, uh, you know, prairie kind of Saskatchewan, Alberta, their prime area, um, massive changes to that landscape. And so those hens that are trying to nest out there are nesting lots of times in subprime locations. And so that that mortality on hens is probably that much, you know, that much greater in general. Um, so, yeah, males do dominate that that population Right to to a large degree, yeah. Hmm. Do you think uh, adding uh, pen raised pintails to that population would help? <laughs> I don't think adding pen. <laughs> sorry, sorry that's I bad. mean, bad joke, I, right? <laughs> you know, I got. I, I mean, we 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 got through the state of New York here, where I'm at in Central New York. We got a, um, like a permit to do a, a shooting preserve type thing, and we were raising 150 quail a year, and releasing them and then shooting them and stuff and you know i talked to some quail biologists and they're like they're not gonna they're not gonna make it they're not gonna make it and i'm like no they will they will and you know sure enough they i mean some of it's the weather but even in the summer they're they were just they couldn't keep a brood together they were dumber than a post and you know pen raised animals in general not not i mean let let the nat, let the not natural world work in in my opinion you know so right but yeah no awesome. pen raised pintails, please. Well, we really appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that'd be a bad idea, I'm sure. <laughs>
That was a, that was a, just to clarify. That was definitely. Hey, we joke. tried black ducks so. at one point. Just so you know, that was a thing. Fish and Wildlife Service actually Did tried they? black. Yeah, black ducks do not do not like pens at all. I mean, they don't they don't like developed areas like a mallard even does. So they struggle. They struggle with it. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. That could be a whole a whole nother podcast. I'd love to hear all about the black duck because I wish we had I wish we had more <laughs> more black ducks and they're an awesome duck. Every once in a while we. We get about one. We're, I'm over here in northern Indiana, and I say we average about our group that I hunt with averages about one a year. Some years we shoot, you know, a handful. Some years we don't shoot any. But um, yeah, so I'd love to see some more awesome black ducks on the on the landscape. Yeah, it's gonna be a tough one um, to ever get them to come come back. I think they're kind of in their, you know, hopefully in their stronghold now, and we can keep them keep them with us. But I don't see them moving back west. Right. You know? Dang. Right. Alrighty, well, we definitely appreciate you coming on tonight, sharing all this information. A lot of it eye opening, a lot of uh, a lot of it cool, cool stuff as well. So, um, you got any kind of closing words for us, Mike? Uh, have fun out there, be safe, right? And uh, I don't know. I have always said this: when people ask you how many ducks do you, do you need to shoot, be truthful, right? Like, there's I feel like there's too many people that are like, oh, I just enjoy duck hunting. Uh, uh, no because like you why don't we see people in the spring in duck blinds with their camera then and with a cup of coffee and hanging out with kids like they're you're yeah you enjoy the sunshine the wet dog all that stuff but at the end of the day you're there to shoot ducks and don't be shy about telling people that so when people ask me like hey you know like from a scale of like one to six how many ducks do you need to shoot i'm like i don't know all of them like it's just a tongue-in-cheek fun thing to say (laughs) Um, but, right, but I think, right. you know, be respectful of the resource and, you know, the folks that are around you, um, you very quickly, if you actually talk to people in the marsh, they're not your enemy. Um, you're more alike than you think you are. And you're actually more alike with all the biologists that are out there working too. So I think we got to stop acting like everybody around us, other hunters and biologists and such are, are, are our enemy. I mean, I'm not a full kumbaya person, but I really do think we got to we got to get along because there's a lot of people that don't even want us to be doing what we're doing at all. Uh, so we can't infight mostly. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Awesome. Well, like I said, we really appreciate you coming on guys. If you want to hear more from him, um, you're doing weekly podcast over there at the foul weather podcast. Really cool during waterfowl season with your, your, uh, duck forecast and you're releasing that what every monday it's about sunday night um, at midnight so if you want to stay up till like one you can get it before but yeah every every monday morning you can hear it yeah and anywhere anywhere else is a good place i need to rephrase that where is a good place where people can um, contact you if they'd, they'd like to get in touch with yeah, you. Yeah, so you can go to our webpage, which is foulweather.co, you know, www.foulweather.co, which is F-O-W-L, weather.co. It's not .com, it's .co. Uh, and you can just contact me directly at drmike at foulweather.co as well. Um, as I've said, I take questions, rants, and hate mail, all of them. So. <laughs> I've only gotten like two hate awesome. mail, which well, I kind of feel bad about because I finally think like, they're the most fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we pro- ho- hopefully we didn't get you in, in too much trouble tonight. You get the hate mail, but we'll see. You never know what kind of person you're going <laughs> to run into on, on the Internet. But um, that's all we got for tonight, guys. I'm Jordan. 
and Hunter from, from the Duck Gun Podcast and Dr. Mike from the Fowl Weather Co. And we'll see you guys on the next one.